this semester we're going through the book of Colossians in the large group here. And um, the book of Colossians is Paul writing to a church in which the people in the church are kind of struggling with what it means to grow into Christ, to change and grow as a Christian. And teachers have come into the church at Colossae saying, we affirm Jesus, we affirm the gospel, we're so glad you have that, but you need something more. Um, You know, it's not sufficient. There are more answers in life. And so they're teaching this kind of Jesus plus um, idea about Christianity and about life. And um, what we're doing tonight is we're picking up in the second half of Paul's introduction. Last week we looked at some of the things Paul, as he's introducing his letter, was thankful for. He's, I'm thankful for the things that are going on in this church, the way you've heard the gospel, the way you've responded to the gospel. Second half of the introduction, what Paul normally does is he says, and this is how I've been praying for you. And so that's where we pick up tonight as Paul expresses his prayers, the way he's praying for the church at Colossae. This is the word of the Lord. Colossians 1, starting verse 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider Your will for our lives tonight, uh, we are naturally resistant to it because our hearts are hard. My heart is hard. But your word, by your word and with your spirit, you soften hearts of stone. You give us hearts of flesh. And pray that you would do that for us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, Elizabeth and I worked at a summer camp. We actually didn't know each other when we worked at the summer camp together. So it was a very long time ago. And um, we, on the ropes course, that are, you know, it was a co ed summer camp. And as co ed summer camps, tend to do. Crushes developed, right? And uh, two friends of ours, Laura and Steve, were getting to know each other on the ropes course, and Laura was kind of crushing on Steve. And um, while we worked on the ropes course during the day, it was hot, and there was always somebody who would go get drinks for people. And it was Laura's day to grab drinks for people, and she'd go around to the ropes course, climbing tower, all that stuff. What do you want? You know, Coke, Diet Coke, water, whatever. And, uh, and Steve ordered water. She went to go get drinks for everybody, and while she was pouring drinks for everybody, she remembered there's kind of an ongoing joke about how Steve loved milk. And she thought, you know, this is it. I'm crushing him. Here's, you know, a way I can kind of subtly, um, you know, communicate attraction to him and all that kind of stuff. Maybe he'll like it and everything. So she pours a glass of milk, takes it out to the ropes course, right? And Steve's so excited. Oh, you know me so well. You brought me milk. Thank you so much, right? And so, you know, things, the wheels are grinding and things are in motion. Then... Later on that evening, she goes to read the Bible for her devotion. And this is what really happened. She's reading the book of Judges. Judges 4, verse 18. This she read, Judges 4, 18 through 20. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. 
And so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk (laughs) and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Uh, If any man comes and asks you, Is anybody here? Say, No. Laura closes her Bible and thanks to Jesus for telling her tonight that she's going to marry Steve. (laughs) And what Laura neglected to do is she neglected to read verse 21, the very next words. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple (laughs) until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. She never read that verse. (laughs) Laura and Steve, she's convinced that night, having not read verse 21, that Laura and Steve were getting married, that God had revealed his will to Laura. Uh, They never dated, never asked her out. They're both married now to other wonderful people. It was not God's will for their life. And you see... That's often the way we think about God's will and how He communicates to us. We're looking for God's will and it's this massive confusion and we're tyrannized. We've essentially become like Christian astrologers reading tea leaves. We have these impulses and we're like, was that the most burritos yesterday? Was that the Holy Spirit telling me I should be a chemistry major? Right? And we have these coincidences that line up and we have these gut feelings and then we have a peace. We've all had a peace about things, right? And so we've really turned into, in some ways, like Christian tarot card readers. Like, there are these signs in our life, and there's this kind of hazy path God's leading us down, and that's how we figure out God's will for our life. Because, in fact, we found the Bible and Jesus insufficient for giving us direction, for giving us all we need in life. In the church at Colossae, that's what they're dealing with. Teachers who are coming in and saying, you have the gospel, you have Jesus, we affirm that, but you need more for all your big questions in life. And this is us. Yeah, the gospel, uh, we know that. But I need God to tell me something more so I can figure out His will for my life, right? Whether or not I should ask about this person, who I should marry, what major, whether or not I should go in the conference, which small group I should join, whether or not I should join a small group, whatever it is. And so we're reading like our palms, reading tea leaves, we're reading signs in creation, thinking God's telling us things about those kinds of things. And what Paul is actually saying tonight is this. In Jesus and in the gospel, we have everything we need. We have everything we need specifically for figuring out God's will for our life. And really the kind of the main point that sits underneath everything we're kind of doing tonight and underneath what Paul is saying in the book of Colossians is this. It's just not about what you do. It's not. It's about who you do it for. It's not about who you do, what you do. It's about who you do it for. It's really about who you love. And so tonight, there are three points. Are What does it mean to know God's will? What is the purpose of knowing God's will? And then how do we have the power to follow God's will? And the way I kind of put it in your outline, the first point, what does it mean to know God's will, is it's not about what you do. It's about who you do it for. And Paul begins his verse in his prayer He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you will be filled with the knowledge of His will. Paul's prayer for the church of Colossians is, I want you to know God's will for your life. 
And he goes on asking you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And the verse, the words immediately uh, coming after that is he's saying what it means to know God's will. The knowledge of his will consisting in all spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. The word spiritual applies to both words there. It modifies both words. So what it means to know God's will is to have spiritual wisdom and to have spiritual understanding. Now, first thing I have to recognize about this is one of the things Paul's saying is, this is something you're filled with. It's something that comes from without, that's given to you by someone else. He's asking that they would be filled, that God would do the work of filling them with the knowledge of His will. But secondly, and more importantly, what we'll spend time on is, we are filled by His Spirit. We are filled with spiritual understanding and spiritual wisdom. That means understanding and wisdom that come from the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to have spiritual wisdom and understanding? Here's our definition, and then we're going to kind of explain it. It's really this. This is really God's will. This is really spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's the ability to see honestly and humbly into ourselves and then also to see into the gospel and to see into Jesus and see how those things come together. It really is the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God and how those two things relate. When John Calvin wrote The Institutes of Christian Religion, the thing that Calvin starts his 1,400 pages of systematic theology in is he says this, some of all Christian piety is knowledge of yourself and knowledge of God. Spiritual wisdom understanding is really knowing honestly and humbly yourself and knowing who Jesus is and where those things come together. You see, the, Jesus actually explains in the book of John what the Holy Spirit does in us, why Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a very specific role. And Jesus says this is the purpose. He says it all throughout several chapters in John. But John fourteen twenty six, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and remind you all that I have said to you. Chapter fifteen twenty six. When the Helper comes, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. 16, verse 8. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 16, verses 14 and 15. He will glorify Me. This is Jesus speaking. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. This is what Jesus is telling us about the work of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of understanding God's will, what the Holy Spirit does, this is how you know it's the Holy Spirit at work, is this. He gives knowledge, belief, confirmation, and everything that Jesus has said and done. The Holy Spirit is always about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always about Jesus. Spiritual wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of God's will is about knowing, believing, trusting, and obeying Jesus. Here's the point. It's not about what you do. Finding God's will is not about chemistry major versus English major. It's about who you do it for. It's about who you do it for. One of my favorite books, and if you haven't read the book, I've lost my copy, so I have to go to the library today. The Princess Bride, if you've seen the movie... You've got to read the book. It'll blow your mind. Change your world. But um, if you haven't read it, what happens at the beginning is there's this country girl named Buttercup. And her parents are farmers. And they have a, they have a, they have a farm boy that works on the farm. 
And uh, early in the story, you find out that one of Buttercup's favorite activities is to taunt the farm boy, to have fun as it, as it, at his expense, to ask him to do menial tasks that are degrading. <laughs> and so the farm boy did what she told him to, and actually he was more of a young man now, this is from the book, but he had been a farm boy when orphaned he had come to work for. And Butter, Buttercup referred to him that way still. Farm boy, fetch me this. Farm boy, get me that. Quickly, lazy thing, trot or I'll tell father. And so you get this picture of her kind of degrading um, the farm boy. And what ends up happening at the very beginning of the story, actually, is you see her kind of mock him, and you see them have this, uh, this life together, and uh, all he ever responds to her whenever she asks all these ridiculous tasks is he just says, as you wish, as you wish, as you wish. Well, early on, she finds out that kind of in light of all this, uh, this ongoing relationship with the farm boy that she's fallen in love with him. And so humbly, because she's been such a jerk, she comes to him and professes her love to him. And then she, re- and, and he tell, she tells her, I love you. And this is his response. or this is, Sorry, this is her. Do you love me, Wesley? Is that it? And he couldn't believe she would ask that. Do I love you? My God, if your love were a grain of sand, mine would be a universe of beaches. If your love... Buttercup interrupted. I don't understand that first one yet. <laughs> she was starting to get very excited now. Well, let me get this straight. Are you saying my love is the size of a grain of sand and yours is this other thing? Because images kind of confuse me. Is this universal business of yours bigger than my sand? <laughs> Help me, Wesley. I have the feeling we're on the verge of something just terribly important. <laughs> Wesley responds, I've stayed these years in my hovel because of you. I've taught myself languages because of you. I've made my body strong for you. I've lived my life with only the prayer that some sudden dawn you might glance in my direction. I've not known a moment in years when the sight of you did not send my heart careening against my ribcage. I've not known a night when your visage did not accompany me to sleep. There's not been a morning when you did not flutter behind my waking eyelids. Is any of this getting through to you, Buttercup, or do you want me to go on for a while? Never stop, she says. There has not been... She interrupts again. If you're teasing me, Wesley, I'm just going to kill you. <laughs> he responds, how can you even dream I might be teasing? She, re- she reacts, well, you haven't said you love me. Oh, that's all you need. Easy. I love you. Okay? Want it louder? I love you. Spell it out, should I? I-E-L-O-V-E-Y-O-U. You want it backwards? You love I. <laughs> Buttercup responds, you're teasing me now, aren't you? He says, a little maybe. But I've been saying it to you. I've been saying it so long to you, you just wouldn't listen. Every time you said, farm boy, do this, you thought I was answering as you wish, but that's only because you're hearing wrong. I love you was what it was, but you never heard. I hear you now, and I promise you this. I will never love anyone else, only Wesley, until I die. It's a great story. That's only the beginning. I'm sure your appetites are whetted. I would say I share that story for this reason. He didn't care what he did. It was for her. You know what I'm saying? It didn't matter what he did. He would have done anything. It was all about her. He did the most menial task, could be degraded. He didn't really care. It was about her. God's will is not about what you do. It's about who you do it for. A couple of brief points of application on that. First is, we don't have to be tyrannized by thinking, I've got to choose the right major, the right occupation, the right spouse, whatever it is, small group, sorority, service organization, lunch crowd, activity retreat, whatever it is, you don't have to be tyrannized. Oh, I've got to find God's will for which, you know, fall conference with campus ministry I need to go to or, you know, who I should eat lunch with. Whatever it is you're praying for and trying to discern God's will, you don't have to be tyrannized that maybe you might not find it. Do what you want to do. 
Just do whatever you want to do. See, if you choose to be a chemistry major this year, and you do that for a year, and it's a disaster, and then next year you realize, I like art, and you become an art major, and you enjoy it, were you out of God's will when you were a chemistry major? No. Did Jesus have to die for you being a chemistry major for a year? No. You weren't out of God's will. You can do whatever you want. It's about who you do it for. Paul's understanding of God's will allows us to stop freaking out about whether or not we're making the right choices in kind of non-ethical areas. Certainly there are moral decisions in which God's will very much has bearing. But in all these other life decisions, do whatever you want. It's about who you do it for. The test of whether or not it's the Holy Spirit, if you're wondering if the Spirit is leading you in a certain direction, is this. Does it confirm what the Bible says about Jesus? If it does, that's the Holy Spirit. Does it confirm what Jesus says to you in the Bible? Now, you can abuse this principle, or you can be freed by this principle. You can abuse it by saying, well, the Internet wasn't around, so the Bible never addressed Internet pornography, and so you can certainly abuse that principle and say, it doesn't address that area, it's an area I'm free in. Or you can be freed by this principle. The Bible doesn't address what career you choose. God actually made us all individually. God is an artist. We're made in His image. We're made to be artists. Be creative. Do what you want to do. It means you can do whatever you want because it's not about what you do. It's about who you do it for. Love Jesus and do what you want. And the reason we know that is because in the next verses we have the purpose of knowing God's will. What is the purpose of His will? Jesus, uh, Paul tells us, So, I hope that you're filled with knowledge of His will, spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks. The purpose of knowing God's will is to walk and to live a life and to walk in a way so as to honor the Lord. See, it's not just about what you do. It's, also, it's about how you do it. You can do whatever you want. What Paul's concerned with is how you go about doing it. The point in growing to know God's will is not... We don't get to know His will by this magic eight ball about our roommate situation next year to reveal, or to reveal you know, our career, whatever it is, or whether or not you should pledge this or do this. God's will, what God's concerned with, is not what you do, but how you go about doing it. That you do it in a way that would glorify God. The first thing he tells us, he spells it out, what that looks like. First thing is, it's bearing fruit. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord pleasing Him? Bearing fruit in every good work. This is what this means. It means to bear fruit is actually to become what humanity was always supposed to be. The Bible actually has a very high view of humanity, actually the highest view of humanity. Humanity is what we were supposed to be. Humanity is the Garden of Eden. God is actually always restoring us back to being even more human than we are now, where everything is fixed. Bearing fruit is both a reference to Paul's other language in places like Galatians where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, but he's actually also echoing Eden for us. He's pointing us back to the way humanity was. When when, uh, Moses in Genesis tells us, uh, before the fall and before sin, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And so he's really kind of giving, he's hearkening back and giving us echoes of Eden before sin came into the world. 
the character that we're supposed to live with is not this like hardline, overly conservative moralism. It is the description of the way it was supposed to be. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's a description of the way it was supposed to be. It doesn't matter what you believe. If you, if you read in Galatians the, what the fruit of the Spirit are, it doesn't matter what you believe. That's a description of a perfect society, of perfected humanity. Everybody agrees to that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is the way it was supposed to be. It's not this hardline, mean moralism that we all think it is. Following God's will means that every, in every good work, you do it like you were supposed to. That whatever task that's set before you, you do it out of love for Jesus. You do it out of joy in the gospel. You do it with peace because of His atoning work. You do it with patience for other broken people in light of the incredible patience He's had with us. We go through each of those, but I kind of thought patience was an easy one to key on. Do you have patience with broken people, with sinners, with people who dig their own holes? You know, the worst kind of people that made, they're all, made all their problems in their life. People who don't have your theology. People who make stupid, stupid decisions. If you can only look at other people in their self-created mess and think, idiots. And you have no idea. You have no idea how lovingly and compassionately patient God has been with you. To know the will of God and to be changed by it and to live in it is to live like we're supposed to live to bear fruit. The next thing he says is um, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is a picture of an ever-growing relationship. Paul's not, ne- not talking about theological knowledge. He's talking about relational knowing. You know, y'all know facts about your major, you know facts about historical figures, but you know your friends. And when you use that word know in that context, it means something different. It means relational knowing. And it's a knowledge that you grow in. I know Elizabeth now better than I did five years ago. I've grown in my knowledge of Elizabeth. Five years from now, I'll know her even better. The purpose of knowing God's will is to grow in your knowledge and in your relationship with Him. It's to bear fruit, increase in knowledge, but also to be strengthened. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in knowledge, may you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy that you be strengthened to endure the inevitable hard things. This is an interesting purpose because what it recognizes is that life is hard and it's difficult. And because it's difficult and you don't have a peace about it, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Rather, God gives us the strength to endure hard things. It kind of contradicts the whole being at peace theology for our decision making because it implies that life will be full of difficulty. But as you understand God's wills more and more, and you understand the saving work of Jesus and the incomprehensible grace He has on people like us, when we understand the new heavens and the new earth that God's making it all right again, then you'll have a sure hope that gives you the strength to walk into the darkest, hardest things in life. And you might even have joy in the midst of it. Knowing God's will serves the purpose of bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, and lastly, giving thanks. Giving thanks in some ways is probably the best summary of Christian maturity. Francis Schaeffer in his book, True Spirituality, basically says it's the heart of Christian understanding. The more we grow in our knowledge of God's will, 
You become a grateful person in every situation. You recognize all of life as a grace. In the hardest situations, you're grateful that God has given you life, that He's given you friends. There are so many things to be grateful for. Elizabeth and I's house is chaos right now. Our children have the throw-up bug. Half of them are trying to potty train while having diarrhea, which is a nightmare, and I probably shouldn't have said that. (laughs) But it's hard. But, oh my gosh, we have four children who are healthy. Their health's not in danger. Do you know how rare that is? That's rare in this world. We have a house that we're not being thrown out of because of financial situation. Where we actually get to stay in our house. Do you know how many people are getting tossed out of their house right now? We have cars that are paid off. Okay, those are luxury items. We sometimes we're thankful for those. Sometimes we're so we're sometimes thankful for our luxury items. We have life. We have food. I mean, when you read the different things people are grateful for in this world, wow, we're so ungrateful. But giving thanks is really a mark of understanding God's will. See, in the in the Princess Bride, when you read that story about Wesley. It's not about what he did. He wouldn't do anything for her. It's also not about what he did. It's also about how he did it for her. He went to great lengths when he explained all the things he did for her. He did it well. He did it with excellence for her. It's not about what you do. It's about how you do it. It's not about what you do. It's about the character with which you do it, which is informed by the person for whom you're doing it. See, if you're seeking peace or purpose in your job, major, social grouping, etc., whatever it is, then you're always going to be confused and frustrated. Because guess what? The happiest people, the people with the best jobs are sometimes unhappy and not at peace with their job. But if your peace and purpose are in Jesus, then you have peace and you have purpose regardless of where you are or what you do. This is why there are people who bag groceries for a living and are happy. It's not because their job's awesome. Their job sucks. But it's not about what you do. It's about who you do it for and how you do it. This is why there are celebrities that are deeply unhappy. They have the best job in the world. And they're deeply unhappy. It's not about what you do. It's about who you do it for. It's about how you do it. Part of what this means... A brief point of application is we actually need to take responsibility for our big decisions. There have been a lot of relationships that have ended because someone didn't receive a peace from God about the relationship. If a peace from God was the marker of God's will, do you understand that Jesus wouldn't have died for sinners? No one would have ever gotten forgiven. No one would have ever been saved. If you want to see somebody who is deeply not at peace with what was being asked for them, Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating blood and praying to God, don't make me go to the cross. No peace. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you can't break up with people, but I'm saying be honest. Stop blaming God for decisions you don't want to be responsible for making. It's okay to break up with people. It's okay to say, we tried this, it's not working out for me. Don't blame God. Other things like major, other things like your roommate, whatever it is, take responsibility for making a decision. Don't blame God for these decisions. You're free to do what you want. This would be a freeing concept. You're free to do what you want. You're not going to be out of God's will if you're a chemistry major. You're not going to be out of God's will if you're a finance major. 
Do what you want to do. If you don't like it, change. It's not about what you do. It's about who you do it for. It's about how you're doing it, how you do it. Stop trying to find your peace in it. Find your peace in God. Lastly, if you're like me, you start feeling the weight of this. You start feeling the weight of, alright, it's not about what I do, but I'm supposed to do it for Jesus. I'm supposed to do it with Christian character. The last question is what motivates us, what drives us to do God's will. And this is a sweet point. It's not about what you do. It's first and foremost about what's been done for us. Paul finishes his prayer. I hope that you bear fruit. I hope you increase in knowledge. I hope that you're strengthened, that you give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints, delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This last point is about the power or the motivation to do it for Jesus and to do it in a manner that honors Jesus. And the point is this. It's not about what you do. It's about what's been done for you first and foremost. And so Paul closes his prayer with a statement about the one to whom and for whom we're to do things. And he tells us about what God did for us first. And he did three things with one implication. First, he qualified us for a share in the inheritance of the saints. The first thing to note, again, is that these are things God did for us. We are not rightful heirs of heaven. We have alienated the Father. We have chosen to be orphans, but God, of His own doing, doesn't just make us eligible like it's a possibility, but secures a heavenly inheritance for us. If you want to talk about the fruit of joy... Believing that will give you joy in all the darkness you encounter in life. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. We, by nature, according to Scripture, are objects of wrath. The way Paul says it in Romans is we exchange the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creation. Whether it's ourselves that we worship or things that we worship. We served a kingdom of darkness and there is no more evident proof the fact that we all sing the kingdom, uh, serve the kingdom of darkness and that every subject of that kingdom leads to death. All of human history testifies to this fact. Everybody dies. That is the ultimate power of the kingdom of darkness. It is the ultimate proof that we all by nature serve the kingdom of darkness. It is the kingdom of darkness' strongest strength, death. And history testifies to that. But He delivers us from that. We didn't do it. We didn't qualify ourselves to do it. He didn't look at Britain like, "Ah, Britain's trying. I mean, look, he's doing ministry, right? We'll give him a shot. There's no cause for boasting, which means there's no cause for thinking we're better than anyone. God delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and delivered us from its most powerful weapon, which is death. He transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus. Even though we sin still, we have a new king And sin is no longer our master. And it is slowly being put to death day by day. And even though sometimes we're tormented, and we're tormented worse than others by our sin and the sin of others, He transferred us into a new kingdom. And it's not of our own doing, because we were never worthy on our own, but it's because of His steadfast love and grace. And this means that not only that our sin is wiped away, but the power of our sin, the greatest power of the kingdom of darkness, has also been defeated, namely death. What it means to be in the kingdom of God 
is to know that we that our death has been defeated. Is to know that in Jesus we have resurrection life. The fact that in all of human history, everyone who submitted to the kingdom of darkness has died except for one person who inaugurates the kingdom of life. And we are united to him not in his death, but also in his resurrection. And so we anticipate that and we look forward to that. That all of those whom God has delivered into his kingdom. He does those three things and lastly Paul tells us there's an implication in him because of all this. We have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So whether or not you're a Christian tonight, whatever, regardless of what you believe, all of our lives are really defined in some way by this task. It sounds simplistic, but I think it's true. We're all trying to counteract or to smooth over or to combat or to hide from or to justify sin and darkness. Now, you might not think in terms of sin and darkness. You might not use that word. But all of our lives are about trying to find a way to not be crushed by our junk or the junk that's been done to us. This is why you went to school. This is why you came to USC. This is why some people drink, and this is why some people don't drink. We're all trying to figure out how to deal with that darkness. This is why some of us are trying on religion, and this is why some of us are letting go of religion. This is why you asked one girl out. This is why you broke up with your boyfriend. We're trying to fix our junked up life, and what Jesus offers is something shocking. He offers to come and fix it himself to wipe away our sin, but He doesn't just pretend like our sin doesn't happen. The word redemption means He comes and instead pays the price for our junk. The word redemption means He pays the ransom. He fulfills the law's demands. Justice is executed on Him on our behalf. Growing in an understanding of the things God has done for us is the power for following His will. The capacity to love and follow Jesus is found first and foremost in understanding how He's loved us. And when you get that, you don't care about what you do. You only care about the person who's loved you. And you only care about honoring the person with your character. It's just not about what you do. It's about who you do it for. It's about how you do it. And the way you do it for that person and the way you develop the character to do it the right way for that person is to see what He first did for you. I do like a lot of books and movies, but if I could recommend one, if you've not seen a version or read or seen the musical of Les Mis, it's phenomenal. And it will change your life in a great way instead of a funny way like The Princess Bride. Um, one of the characters, the characters that's really focused on in the musical and in the movie is a guy named Jean Valjean. Early in his life, his family's starving. He steals. And he goes to jail. Lies in jail... He steals food for his family while they're starving. While he's in jail, he tries to escape on four different occasions. He's caught, taken back to jail. His sentence is extended. And so while he didn't go into jail as a hardened criminal, over 19 years he really becomes a hardened criminal by virtue of the environment uh, in which he lived. And so finally he's released at the end of his term. And on his first night of release, he happens upon this old, kind of generous, kind clergyman named Bishop Muriel. And Bishop Muriel serves him a hot dinner that night and gives him a guest room and really wants to set him up and, and serve Valjean. And that night Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night and actually steals the bishop's silver plates and his forks and knives and spoons and runs off in the middle of the night. And the cops actually catch him, catch him 
and they bring him back to the bishop to make an identification. And when they bring him to the door, they say, is this the man and is this your silver? And the bishop says, this man's not a thief, he's my guest. And this silver, he didn't steal, it's a gift. And he said, by the way, Jean, you forgot the candlesticks. And he goes back in the house and he gives the candlesticks to Valjean. And he tells Valjean, tonight I purchased you. I bought your soul. Go and honor this. And what happens is, as the story unfolds, is Valjean, you know what he goes on to become? Just a manufacturer. He's just a manufacturer. It's actually a side part of the story. But the way in which he goes about being a manufacturer is phenomenal. He builds orphanages. He provides educational people. He saves people's lives. He gives away loads of money. He cares for orphans. He cares for widows. See, he didn't become a pastor. He didn't become what the clergyman was. He became whatever he wanted to become. But the way in which he did it and the one for whom he did it is what drove him. And you see, it's not really even about what he did. What it starts was him understanding what was done for him. Understanding that what's been done for you is the beginning of understanding God's will. Let's pray.